Good evening. I'm Kim Leith uh, from the Humanities Department here at the Pratt Library. Uh, welcome to the Poetry and Conversation series. Uh, we're very happy that you've joined us here tonight. Um, this is the first event of a new series of poetry readings here at the Pratt Library. Uh, we hope you will also join us February 8th for a reading with poets Clarinda Harris and Bruce Sager and March 14th for an evening um, of readings with Jane Satterfield and Ned Balbo and Virginia Crawford and Sam Schmidt. We also have a poetry contest um, that we're co-sponsoring with Little Patuxent Review. Uh, there are flyers about that on the refreshment table. And uh, there will also be uh, poetry workshops in April with Professor Emerita from Towson University, Clarinda Harris. And please see one of um, us librarians uh, for more information about that. Uh, tonight, each of our poets will read for about 15 minutes, and then we'll have a question and answer period. Then the poets will read some closing poems. Afterwards, there'll be some time for mingling, book signing, and refreshment, so please uh, stay afterward. My colleague Shailene will now introduce our poets for tonight. Hi, uh, I'm Shailene. I'm from the fiction department here. And we are very honored to have Aishan Hutchinson and Valjina Mort here with us tonight. Aishan Hutchinson was born in Port Antonio, Jamaica, and he came to study in the U.S. in 2006. He has won an Academy of American Poets Levis Award and his first collection, Far District Poems, published in 2010, won the 2011 Penn Joyce Osterweil Award for Poetry. Far District uses powerful meters and painterly details to transport us to a Jamaican village, a place where gods and ghosts are as real as hurricanes and flowers. Though this landscape belongs uniquely to the poet, he traces it with such reverence that it becomes ours also, and we are at home among its elements, from the public water pipe where a bathing woman shines like a new tire tube, to the autumn field furrowed with stars. Valjina Mort was born in Minsk, Belarus, and moved to the United States in 2005. She has published two books in the U.S. in 2008, Factory of Tears, where the poems appear both in Belarusian and in English, co-translated by Elizabeth Olkers Wright and the poet Franz Wright, and in 2011, Collected Body, which she wrote in English. She has received many prizes, most recently the Best Hawken Prize from Poetry Magazine, and the Lannan Foundation Literary Fellowship. Valjina's poems are famous for their incantatory rhythms and their mesmerizing dreamlike images, such as the tailed magician pulling New York out by the ears of skyscrapers, and the sea that slaps its adopted child and steps back all tears. With mordant wit, she exposes the tragedies and black comedies of our experience, our societies, our bodies. Her language is like a dark, seductive fruit of knowledge that we cannot help but eat. 
Please help me to welcome Aishin and Valjina. Good night. Um, I'm going to start with a poem from Edouard Glissant, a Martinician poet. And you probably know Martinique in the Caribbean. And the poem is called Ocean. The ancestors speaks. It is the ocean. It is a race that washed the continents with its veil of suffering. It says this race which is song, dew of song, and the muffled perfume, and the blue of song. And its mouth is the songs of all the mouths of foam. Ocean, you permit, you are accomplice, maker of stars. How is it you do not open your wings into a ferocious lung and see? There remains only the sum of the song and the eternity of voice and childhood already of those who will inherit it. Because as far as suffering is concerned, it belongs to all. Everyone has its vigorous sand between their teeth. The ocean is patience. Its wisdom is the tear of time. Moving now to my poems, and you will mark the big difference between um, something so masterful and what I hope will uh, be good enough for you to remain here. If not, I think uh, Stephen's baby, Simon, will provide us with some music. So, <clears throat> The Garden. The street lights shed pearls that night above the hot mint. The sky quivered. A man heard his true love's name. The stray dogs ran but did not bark at the strange shadows that night. The minister of all could not sleep. Mosquitoes swarmed around his net, his portrait and his pitcher and drinking glass. The flags stiffened on the embassy building but did not fall when the machine guns flared and reminded that stars were there inside the decrypt towns, in shanky zinc holes, staring at the fixed constellation. Another asthmatic whirl of pistons passed. The chandelier fell. The carpet sparkled. Flames burst into the lantana bushes. The stone horse winnied by the stone's marble entrance. Large cranes with searchlights lit the poncianas. A quiet flamboyance struck with the fever of children's laughter. Then all at once, the cabbage palms and the bullhoof trees shut their fans. The harbor grew empty and heavy. The sea was sick and quiet. The royal palms did not salute when the jeeps roamed up the driveway and circled the fountain. The blue maho did not bow, and the lignum vitae shed purple bugles, but did not surrender. The homeless did not run, but the dead were in flight. 
They flew in a silver stream that night. Their silk hair thundered and their heels crushed the busy nuts and ceramic roofs. The night had the scent of cut grass sprayed with poison. The night smelled of bullets. The moon did not hide that night. The prisoners prayed in their bunkers. The baby drank milk as its mother slept. And by the window, its father could not part the curtains. <clears throat> Requiem for Aunt May. A calm sign in the trees of May. She's dead. Not like this dirge staying in the air. Her name recited in the camphor house where the chalk figurine that haberdashery sphinx reclines riddled by the TV. There no one faces the calendar. Riverstone talks go under the bridge of condolences and land on the old sofa's shoulder. I, her water child, keep watch over her laminated savior nailed into the wall, flipping a coin whose head promises Daedalus. Someone pries open an album. The cocoon postcards wail on the line, pronouncing Aunt May, Baker, builder of the Yellowstone house. Your children hatched wings while your face was bent in the oven. The mixing bowls, the wooden spoons, the plastic bride and groom knew before the night alarmed your passing. So you passed in a floral dress, a shawl softly tied to your head, the house spring cleaned. Enters Daedalus, father, dressed in white, hands in pockets, strolling through priors and smoke of the morning wake. I listen, his limbs are pure starch. On the veranda, I in the gong-tormented sea, seaweed streak his beard, salt rimmed his apologies. I hesitate at the labyrinth of father and son, red hurt throbbing my ears from my fall on the poppy grounds. Fog swallowing all that was carried over years of saying nothing. Silence, this flame held back before erupting as an oven of the heat has been sucked from it. I begin in silence my life then and there as a ghost. <clears throat> uh, the next poem um, is set in the eastern parish of uh, uh, Jamaica called St. Thomas. And um, St. Thomas is famous for, it's not famous actually, but if, <laughs> if it were to be famous for anything, it would be a sugar cane. There are lots of sugar cane plantations um, around. 
So this poem concerns a sort of mini revolution that happened, or didn't happen, was supposed to happen, um, by sugarcane cutters. And it's called Fitzy. Fitzy and the Revolution. Uh, Fitzy is a popular name, sort of nickname for Fitzroy, which is a popular name in Jamaica. The rumor broke first in Duckensfield. Fitzy dropped the shutters of his rum shop. By the time it got to Dalvey, there were three suicides. The mechanic in Cheswick heard and gave his woman a fine trashing. But to her credit, she nearly scratched his heart out of his chest during the howl and letter smiting. The betting shops and the whorehouse daylights at Golden Grove were empty. It was brutal to see the women with their hands at their jaws on the terrace. Seeing them, you know the rumor was not rumor. The rumor was gospel. The cane cutters did not get their salary. Better to crucify Christ again, slaughter newborns, strike down the cattle, but to make a man not have money in his pocket on a payday Friday was abomination itself. Worse, cane cutters who filed their spines against the sun, bringing down great walls of cane. You'd shudder to see them, bareback men bent kissing the earth to slash away the roots of the canes. Every year the same men, different cane, and when different men, the same cane, the cane they cannot kill, living for this one day of respite, when they'd straighten themselves the pillars and drop dollars on counters and act like daylights are sweet at the Ritz and the devastating beauty queens with their galling, fragile attention gave them forever to live in a tickle. The wetted cane piece, this one day forgotten in the whore's laugh. Suddenly these men fill Hampton Court Square demanding the foreman's head. They were thirsty for blood and for rum. Fitzy stayed hidden in the shop behind the shutters. He heard one man say it was not the foreman's head they should get. That would not be wise. The man continued, it must be fire for fire. The factory must be burnt down. But the man murmured, they were afraid. Someone made a joke, they roared. And soon they were roaring, saying fire can't buy rum. They were roaring money, then rum, pounding Fitz's shutter, shouting his name for him to set them on fire. They grew hoarse against the shutters. The sun had taken all motion out of their voices. Fitzy could hear them through the zinc, like dogs about to die. Cried out children, that dry rustle you hear after the crop is torched and the wind bristles the ashes. No men were out there, only a shearing noise. That was when Fitzy opened the shutters. Their red eyes in charcoal suits looked up at him, and with an overseer's scorn, he nodded them in.
Naomi, my mother, you are sick. I am afraid as if I were in darkness and slit white eyes are mocking me. The healer woman says you've been marked, that your enemy put a coolie duppy on you. So mornings when the basil rise in the nose, the duppy is outside. Naomi, why you? You never trouble people. You don't hang with rumhead district women on the plaza, cutting eyes, lapping skirts and people's business whole day. They call you things. I hear them. Nini, lady of the night, bird. The dish towel names hang on fences to quail in the sun for all to see. What wrong you cause? What damage? Is it us? You're too precious that you boast of. Our father who ran away to the streets of England. We who wear shoes out of the once in a blue moon parcel to school and eat out of crockery and must not ramp with village picnic. Naomi, did I fertilize their envy and push their hands to Abia to watch you turn fool, mad woman running across yards chased by a white hair, shrill voiced, coolie duppy. Naomi, I see you sick and hurting and I can't help you. I afraid to look in your eyes or touch you, my own mother. It kills to watch your mouth corner froth and dry with the sickness, the strong smell of healer's potion in your skin, oil in your creases, in your ears and neck, and your wrist tied to the bed, vomit on your bosom, blood in your torn hair, fury in your grunts and screams. Naomi, my mother, you are sick, but you're not dead, not yet, though that horror is in your eyes, and I piss myself like a boy who's lost and hungry in the night swamp where morning will not light. Oh God, Naomi, I'm too weak and I'm watching you dying while my sister sleeps on the floor, her dreams troubled by the open vials. Father, hear me now, take me, leave my mother for the other child. So. I'll read two more. The Venus of Bullendorf. A modest, in broad daylight, a ruddy-bellied woman bathes at the public standpipe, jubilant with water laughter as we stand, as we all stand and wait with our buckets and bottles. No one dares advance and excuse me, miss. Rather we watch soap foams in her creases than washed out, clean and black. She shines like a new tire tube. The pipe runs on high. A stream forms around her tiny ankles, hidden, hidden like stones or a boy's marbles. Not only, not until she's fully dried, her coarse hair brushed violently to release water and her rag rung twice, 
Does she step from the throne, timidly balancing on one foot while drying the other, then shoves it in a push-toe rubber slipper? She repeats this, laughing. Oh, Jesus, my body, clean as a pimento tree after rain. She gathers her pans, paying us no mind, whistles home. A surveyor's journal. I took my name from the after sky of a Mesopotamian flood, birdless as if culture had shed its wings into a ground vulture on the plain. Beneath the astral plane, a war ripped sail rigged to its mass, a lantern and a girl who swayed and stared off where the waves raced backwards. I begged her in signs. She jumped overboard, arms sieving seaweeds, eyes netting home. Dear Ivy, you live in my veins. Spurned flesh, I couldn't bridle the weather vane shift. It turned and turned into a landfall, and I, panting panther, sleek carnivore of the horse-powered limbs ran from a rain of terror all my despairs in green rain on leaves i prayed to the mantis head wrapped in white reading the song of god over a bowl of beef afterwards i hemmed into my skin this hymn o lemon souls of the mass migration that ended in drowning or embroidered heart and marigold wrists that brushed the copper-brown field. O cargoes that left the dengue jungles and ended on the yellow fever shores. O compass points that needled the new to the old, stitching meridians into one-tenths. O reflecting telescope that spied the endangered specimens, clashing head brass, the vertical man versus the horizontal man, those who lost their surnames to the sea's ledger, beached up on the strange coast, waiting for the starliner to cross that imagined Mesopotamian water, the ship's bulwarks in sleep, weighed down a spirit bird, my calm to never flounder, to walk holy and light on this land. Thanks. Good evening. I'll start with a short poem in Belarusian and um, and then switch into English. You won't notice. <laughs> И снова по выниках ходу самых высоких показальников досягнула фабрика слез. Покуль Министерство транспорта топтало обцасы, 
покуль Міністерство сердечних справ билося в гістериці. Фабрика сльоз працювала по ночах, навіть по святах ставила рекорди витворчості. У час, коли станція по перепрацьовці їжі пережовувала чергову катастрофу, фабрика сльоз перейшла на економічно рентабельну перепрацьовку відходів минулого, головним чином особистих успомінів. Фотоздимки роботників году урочисто розмістили на стіні плачу. Я інвалід праці, фабрики героя сльоз. У мене на вачах мазалі, у мене перелом щок. Мне платят зарубок продукцию, которую я вырабляю. И я счастливая тем, что маю. And once again, according to the annual report, the highest productivity results were achieved by the factory of tears. While the Department of Transportation was breaking heels, while the Department of Heart Affairs was beating hysterically, the factory of tears was working night shifts setting new records even on holidays. While the food refinery station was trying to digest another catastrophe, the factory of tears adopted a new, economically advantageous technology of recycling the wastes of the past, memories mostly. The pictures of, of the employees of the year were placed on the wall of tears. I am a recipient of workers' comp from the heroic factory of tears. I have calluses on my eyes. I have compound fractures on my cheeks. I receive my wages with the product I manufacture. And I'm happy with what I have. I grew up far away from the sea, so uh, in my poems the sea um, appears only as a metaphor for something else, and never quite as the sea itself. Opera is a fish market where fish sing with the silver of their flesh. The conductor plunges the knife, and from the nets of singers' lungs deep water fish fall out. And when in agony on the cutting board, in a hysterical search for the seawater, fish lick the sweat from their mongers' hands and gulp the dripping on the floor blood, hoping to stuff it back in their bodies. Silver scales melt into a bullet, and the bullet aims at the fish's gills. Sing. How could a fish know under the water that it took from the hook, not the bait, but a note that a pole made by Stradivari would bite at its heart like a serpent three times, Hasana, 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 three times for father, spirit, and son. Who are you, a conductor or priest? Is it a baton or a cross? Shh, opera, not earrings your carmen wears, but tambourines. Her heart, like a horn, lives off the lips. No blood in her veins but saliva of kisses and blood she wears outside as a dress. O oh, Carmen, we smuggle into the night the cargo you hid inside our ears. Don Jose, slim like a knife's blade, you'll write the last note on the scores of the gypsy's ribs. Opera, voice tasting on an empty stomach. 
a vineyard of your wardrobes. I would run through them barefoot with a wasp in my ear toward your curtain parting like a great sea, your voices departing bodies like big sheeps and voyaging until they hit silence. Island. Rash of the hobolites in the mountain region. Night, he says, is the dark humor of the day. First you're scared, but by the sunrise I'll get you laughing. My head, thrown back in laughter, has bought me more than money thrown forward, and men pressed me down and worked like a Chinese seamstress. But none could slap my face as hard as the sea slaps its adopted child and then steps back, all tears. This island spat out by the sun over the world's shoulder. A fence holds the Bugavia laughter behind its teeth. A metal gate guards the doze of heat-stricken watchdogs. A road comes up to my face and stands like a mirror showing everything that has led me to it. A bed, soft like bruised fruit, a whole lime garden bruised by the afternoon shade, and his book's hard spine breaking with a day. A body strips down all the way to forgiveness and grants itself before there's even a reason, unless it wants to tell the other, I forgive your juices for not feeling this hard fruit, your skin for not cracking and rotting over the ants' heads. I forgive your throat for not birthing the dog's cuff. I forgive your hand right now, falling, rising, and leaving trace unlike what it praises. I forgive your shadow for never becoming a stain to mark this road, this bed, but mostly this sea. Bricks of gray moonlight fall weightlessly through the wooden shades building a new wall above the sink. And here he lies on his stomach. The gap between his ass and his thighs forms a perfect black diamond. Horizon blistered by the setting sun heals, leaving a hardly visible scar. A woman's hallelujah washes the foot of the mockingbird hill. Her face eclipsed by her black mouth, her eyes rolled up like workman's sleeves. Stirred up, a fly speaks in the tongue of the hotel doorbell, where on the sun-ridden straw terrace, my salvation mean less than praise to a dumb child. Damned, blinded by ice cubes, the fly surrenders its life into the waiter's clean hands. Behind the kitchen of the Mockingbird Hotel, 
A rooster repeats hallelujah until it loses its head. A man harvests the family tree before his forefathers' features have a chance to ripen on their faces. Parakeets watch him from the bare nerves of the garden. He harvests before the worms that eat his father turn into demons. Do not eat the fruit from your family tree. You have eyes not to see them, hands not to pick them, teeth not to bite them, tongue not to taste them even in speech. The waiter slashes the table with our bill. We descend the mocking bird hill without raising dust. Dogs, their fur hanging like wet feathers of their backs, piece yellow smoke without lifting a leg. Gulls smash their heads between their wings. Light lays eggs of shadows under the shrubs. Produce shacks stand empty like football gates. What appeared blue from afar turns green. I hold it on in, even my own urine. But the mother of vowels slumps from my throat like the queen of a havoc beehive. Higher than hallelujah, rising like smoke over the hill, I scream at the top of that green lung. Why in the mockingbird hell do you value your blood over your sweat? That bitterness over this salt, that wound over this crystal. But often, to shed light on the darkness, light isn't enough. Often what I need is even a darker darkness, like in those hours before the sun incriminates this hotel. His two nostrils that illuminate our benighted bodies. My father's breed. It's four in the morning. I'm ten years old. I'm beating my mother between the mirror and the shoe rack. The front door is ajar. A bridge presses its finger to a frozen strip of water. Snow falls over it, gritting like sand on glass, both of us in our long nightgowns. I stare into her earring hole and aim at her large breasts, not to hurt my knuckles. I slap her face like I flip through channels. My father lies at the door. From his shirt, lipstick smiles at me with the warmth of urine. It's as if somebody threw at him slices of skinned grapefruit. Every time she hits him, I hit her. Look at this. Look whom you've bred. How can he see from under his pink vomit? But his body smiles, cannot stop smiling. And I'll read two more poems before we go into questions. Thank you so much for coming out on a rainy night. I thank you so much for the Annette Pratt Library for having us here. 
And um, we were wondering for a long time if we would get those huge posters in the windows <laughs> with our faces on it. And it was a moment of little triumph <laughs> walking today and seeing it. The most human sound a body can hear. Teeth being cleaned late at night across the hallway. Even the locusts listen, confused. She too, on a bare mattress thrown on the floor, is surprised how much of his body is in that sound. As if she had just now noticed that he had arms. The spit shooting down the sink, she still counts as his body. The news of his saliva over her pussy, she still counts as his body. A suitcase of the body slapped with stickers of scars from every location. He folds her inside and he ships her and ships her and ships across canteens behind gas stations, across seas, across the hands of men in blue uniform. He ships her faster to catch the early delivery truck. When he sits underneath her skirt, she is compelled to make confession. Through the wall, the neighbor reads the names of medications, and she thinks the neighbor is counting precious stones. Amiodarone, Zafinapril, Metaprolol, Mexifin. Oh yes, she will inherit those jewels. She will wear those jewels over her mouth to hide its twist. But for now, he cleans his teeth, and the locusts fall silent. She lies across the hallway smelling his long day clothes tossed on the bathroom floor as his sweat crawls out of the cotton folds and disperses and multiplies like cockroaches. Outside your borders, they build a huge orphanage and you left us there, Belarus. Maybe we were born without legs. Maybe we worshipped the wrong gods. Maybe we brought you misfortune. Maybe we were deathly sick. Maybe you were not able to feed us. Why couldn't we just beg for food? Maybe you never really wanted us. But at first, we also didn't know how to love you. Your language is so small that it can't even speak yet. But you, Belarus, are hysterical. You are certain that midwives mixed up the bundles. What if you're feeding somebody else's baby, letting another's language suck your own milk? A bluish language lying on the windowsill. Is it a language or last year's Hofrost? Is it Hofrost or an icon's shadow? Is it a shadow or just nothing? It's not a language. It doesn't have any system. It is like death, sudden and unscrupulous. Like death you can never die from, like death that brings the dead to life. Language that makes you burn newborns, language that makes a brother kill a brother, language that nobody had kied from, language that delivers men's freaks, delivers women beggars, delivers headless beasts, delivers toads with human voices. This language does not exist. It doesn't have any system. It's impossible to talk to it. It strikes you in the face at once, even on holidays. You won't decorate the city with it. It can't be doctored up with either fireworks or neon light. Oh, come on, let the system kiss my accordion. 
and my accordion. When it stretches its bellows, my accordion looks like mountain peaks. It eats from my hands, it licks them, and like a kid, won't get off my lap. But time will come and it will show its tra -da -da -da. Thank you. Okay, so now we're going to have a, a question and the question and answer portion of the evening. Um, and we do have a microphone over here, so um, you all are very welcome to ask questions. I'm just going to start by asking a question to get us um, in the flow. And I'm, I was wondering about your writing process, if you could talk a little about how a poem usually begins for you? Is it an image, a phrase, a concept? And do you have a particular writing routine? Um, do you show your writing to other people? Do you revise? That kind of question. It's a big secret. Let me see. <laughs> and I think I'll charge $10 per person. Um, a, a writing system. Not, not any that is consistent. Uh, it, it begins in various ways. Um, I have the good luck, good fortune to have been born somewhere that uh, quite beautiful. And I, I do write a lot about the landscape. So it's a matter of describing for me uh, in the beginning. But it always requires more. So I have to <clears throat> figure out a way to let the language become um, sufficient and, and musical uh, as and as beautiful if if possible as the landscape that i i grew up in um and you know the, the emotional things memory um that uh, suddenly strike you while you're in traffic like now and um and so you have to pull over on the highway and scribble something down and uh, but you you what you write down initially is, is, I don't think, a poem, even though it might be poetry. There's a huge difference between those two, in that one is uh, very, poetry is, is, it belongs to the moment of its happening, but the poem is something that must be constructed. And in constructing that, it takes quite a lot of revision. Um, it's a whole process of suffering praying, uh, petitioning, begging. You have, you know, you're getting the idea. Um, so it, it sometimes can be fun, but never my own poem. It, it, the fun is reading someone else's and, and saying, well, I wish I could do that and uh, live with that envy for a while and then revisit my own poem, see if anything that I just read is good enough to steal and you know, uh, hopefully, uh, um, so that, that in, a, in a nutshell is kind of the process. So it's a process of uh, while writing, always reading, and trying to summon memory um, as, as much as I can. Well, I was lucky to be born in a very ugly country. <laughs> so there was always a need to transform what was around into something um, beautiful. Um, when, you know, when the, the, the whole idea of beauty um, could be, could, 
could be transformed from uh, just a beautiful or ugly object into um, into language um, where kind of the standards for beauty are completely different um, than in reality. And uh, for me, it's also a very um, mysterious <laughs> and um, long process. The poem, a poem usually starts with um, with a shape, sometimes with a shape, with a rhythm, with certain music that um, at a certain moment finds its content, um, or sometimes with an image, with a line, two lines that just want to be continued. And um, I could carry them and kind of roll them in my mouth like a candy for a very long time um, until, um, until something else comes in. It's the, the kind of process of fishing, you know, you just throw in the net and pull it out and see, see what's there and usually you're very unsatisfied and you throw it back in and um, always try to throw it further and deeper. Um, but still you get a shoe. <laughs> uh, so and then and then it's um, a long a long process of editing and reading, yeah, revising. And then it, it never ends. Yeah, you know, this this book is new, so it's not marked up yet. But Factor of Tears is all edited all over. It's a it's a completely different book if you read it with my pencil marks. <laughs> The creative juices can go in their sleep because of all their sleep. Because there sometimes it can be a little sleep and just wake up something before. Does that ever happen? Okay, so I'm just going to repeat the question. Um, he's wondering if the creative juices are related to your sleep process. Do you, for example, do you ever wake up with inspired? Um, how does this relate to sleeping? Oh, it's sleepless. <laughs> <laughs> There's no sleeping. Um, Let's see. Yes, I mean all the time. The, the 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 writing down of a poem is only one aspect of creating poetry. That's it's probably even the most minor. Some might argue because you carry around a poem, or you 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 wish for it. So the 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 the, um, the desire to write is always there. And it, if you're lying down in bed, I think that's a really comfortable spot. <laughs> to to find a line suddenly, uh, or something come into you, and uh, and you know you you could get up and write it down. But yes, I I think a lot of artists would agree that they're in you know you have this whole thing of artists being insomniacs, um, bad sleepers and drinkers. <laughs> um, well. Um, yeah, I think that writing interrupts everything, not just sleeping, but yeah, eating, um, doing, a po doing a poetry reading. <laughs> so doing a poetry reading is a good place on the stage to be writing something. <laughs> well, but um, for me, to tell the truth, um, I prefer good night's sleep and then early morning work when my head is very clear and um, to, to wake up early and do that is great, even though, I mean, I, I say it as a, as a kind of like a fantasy rather than <laughs> a reality. It rarely happens, but when it happens, it's always the most productive work, early morning work. Um, can someone else yeah. come with a question? Okay. If you could step over the mic, it would be great. Uh, yes, I'm from Baltimore, Maryland here. And we have a 
remarkable poetry community here in the city. And I'm wondering if you are aware of what's being done or if you have any favorite poets from Baltimore or if you have any comments about the Baltimore City community of poets. Thank you. Um, I, think, I think the communities are very important, but at the same time, uh, I never limit um, kind of my interest in, in poetry or in poets by, by region or by city. Uh, so, um, you know, I think that po po a poet just lives in the inner world, in the world, uh, no matter what, what city, state, or country. So, um, I'm, I'm always interested in what um, poets are doing, not just locally, but how this local movement and um, a local community interacts with the rest of the world. And um, I think, yeah, I think there are a lot of remarkable um, things happening in the artistic community in Baltimore. And there are great, great reading series um, to go to uh, for, for poetry and for fiction, I mean, prose, nonfiction too. Um, so, and, um, you know, I teach at the University of Baltimore, so I have, uh, I meet a lot of, um, young writers from the area, not only from the area, but a lot of them are from, from Baltimore and from Maryland. So um, I think, you know, I think it's important because of course when you, when you write, you are, maybe not immediately start writing about the landscape where, where you just move to, um, but um, you do write you do describe this landscape and this life and you and you realize that there is a whole community of artists doing the same um so it's it's always good to know what other people are writing but um i never attach myself to a particular community anywhere i can i just i live in the world hi this is a question directed to you i um the last time i saw you read at, at ub you Somebody asked if you had written any Baltimore poems. So kind of to follow that, I wonder, have you written any Baltimore poems now that you've been here a little longer? Or are you still? Uh, I just wonder if you could speak about you why. You had a year, so come on. <laughs> no, no, no. I just, I just wonder how um, I lost my train of thought. But what could you talk about why you feel compelled to write mostly about your homeland. OK. Well, I haven't been. I think you have to live somewhere for seven years until you're, <laughs> and you're allowed to write anything about that place. Uh, it, it's, I, I read that somewhere. I believe it's a rule. Um, well, I, I have tried. I, and I, I, I think in different ways, even though I, am, I, I agree with Valgina, the environment here of writing the space itself, whenever I'm writing, enters into the the mode in, uh, of my um, the, the creative space that I'm trying to to, to to occupy at that moment. In that, the noises, the the, the smell of things, these things are part of what I, are grouping together. And though they might not come out uh, or be, uh, they're not represented in 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 the words themselves. I think they are still there. So I could say, well, this poem was written in Baltimore. And if it were written in 
in, in Spain, it wouldn't have been the same thing. Something about the place is still there. But as far as saying a poem that in content is about Baltimore, uh, there, there are really lots of failed drafts. You know this, I think I mentioned it the, the, that time at UB, that there's a, a restaurant on Charles Street called the, the Brass Elephant that has been empty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's what's interesting about it, <laughs> that it, it had the tables set there in the window and, and, and looked as if people, I don't know, I, I think people might uh, come there and clean and all of that, but it, it always looks set and ready for occupancy but never open. And, um, and but just even, the, I thought that the name was interesting too, but then I started to do some reading about that place that in fact, uh, uh, there's, a, there's a painting in there by one of America's great landscape painter, but sort of a minor painter whose name is not coming to me at the moment. Um, but I wonder about this place and I started creating a lot of fiction you know, that maybe some great crime happened there. You know, it's Baltimore, so I thought that was appropriate. Or, um, you know, just, just different things. Um, and so it, it, it's interesting, Baltimore, to think even about the tradition of, of Poe and, um, and other writers that have lived here, were born here, Fitzgerald. So there's, a, there's a, an amazing... Um, and strong tradition. And uh, I wouldn't say that I, I, I'm, I'm inclined to want to put myself in that, but it's just fantastic to think that, well, I was, or I am currently living in a city that, um, that created such great um, talents. Um, uh in both your books, uh, I notice there's a lot of tension between uh, an external landscape and an internal landscape. Uh, um, it seems like uh, those two things are always trying to transform the other. Um, and I was wondering if uh, you could talk a little bit about what other writers um, you feel like you're in dialogue with uh, in the same way that uh, Ilya Kaminsky talks about like a correspondence in the air um, kind of across time. Um, so I wonder if you talk about some, some authors you feel like your work might be in dialogue with. Um, yeah, I think, I think with Paul, it, a dialogue is really a good word here. When, when you write a poem, I think you're always responding, responding to some other poem that you've read um, or heard. And um, when I was writing Collected Body, I always had um, four or five books uh, constantly with me. And um, they were, I don't know why I pulled them together, but they were uh, a collection of um, Edwin Arlington Robinson, um, a wonderful American poet um, from um, the first half of the 20th century, and uh, Rainer Maria Rilke, a German poet, whom I was reading in English. Um, I had a book by Ann Carson, and um, a book by an Italian uh, poet, Cesare Pavese. So those those four books I was reading together, and they were completely different. Like Pavese is very prosaic, and then Carson is very experimental, and um, you know Rilke is Rilke. <laughs> Just <laughs> kill yourself and stop, stop writing. <laughs> and um, Edwin Allington Robinson, um, 
uh, it, it's quite amazing. Uh, when Joseph Brodsky was uh, interviewed and asked, um, I think, if um, there was a uh, if there was a poet in English who could have retranslated the Bible, um, then um, Brodsky's reply was that it, it, there was one. It was Edwin Arlington Robinson. And um, it's interesting to read him from, from that perspective, from, from that ability that he carried himself, uh, but uh, didn't realize, um, or I never, never thought of realizing, probably. So um, it's, you know, it would be wrong to say that those poems, uh, poets influenced the book directly, but um, because, you know, the influence is not direct, was transformed. And um, it's you know a line here, a line there, where the music of those books echoes, or just me going for longer lines or shorter lines, um, as, as, and uh, try trying those things out. And um, so it's very hard to to really, I think, for somebody else to place it. But I know what I was reading. <laughs> um, I know what's there. Um, so. Um, and um, and right now um, I'm uh, I'm reading um, a lot of this poet poet from Uzbekistan, uh, Shamshat Abdullayev, um, who um, who is very interesting uh, because he writes a lot about heat and the Central Asian landscape, and I love reading him next to the Caribbean poets writing about heat <laughs> and um, Caribbean landscape, and the, to see the kind of dialogue they're having and to, to think, how do I come in? You know, the, the child of a landlocked, ugly country. <laughs> how do I enter into this conversation? It's, in, uh, it's interesting you brought up the Central Asian uh, poet and his landscape, because there is, the, the, Car the Caribbean seem to have a great affinity, or poets from the Caribbean to, to Homer and uh, Aegean uh, seascape, we, we just think that, well, it's an island, so we claim Homer. And because um, he's writing about island life, uh, uh, well, you know, from, uh, from the Grecian period, ancient Greek uh, war and, and travel. But we, we have that experience where um, once you, you know, you're surrounded by sea, so the, the tropes become very similar. A, a sail becomes a, a, an, a, an, an image of either leaving or, or returning. So that, I think, happens a lot. So I think I am very much always close to, well, I, I'll say Homer is always close at hand um, whenever, um, particularly, particularly the, the Odyssey, because we haven't had um, such a great war fought in the Caribbean where I could turn it into an epic. I'm, I'm waiting for that to happen for a sort of, um, you know, a great war between Caribbean islands. I think it would be, it would be fantastic, um, Trinidad versus Jamaica. And then we'll probably, we'll have to form allies. Um, the Bahamas would be very jealous because no one would want them. Because you know, they're still trying to be Caribbean. And it's a difficult process. Um, but so closer to our century, but 
not to say that Homer isn't so much alive when you, you read him. It's as if he's really our contemporary. Um, but uh, recent poets that have interested me, and, and this is turning into a different answer, Stephen. So um, uh, I, I have been looking at different translations of a poet Virginia just mentioned, Pavese. I have no Italian, so I'm going by the English and seeing how different um, di different translations produce different kind of English, and um, and 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 because Pavese's interest in the long line is coming out of of Whitman, his own engagement with translating uh, your great uh, poet Walt Whitman, so to see that there's a correspondence happening between Whitman in English, who really adopted the, the liturgical long line of the King James Bible in translation. Um, I don't think Whitman would have read Vulgate, so he, he is also participating in a different tradition. So Pavese, who is translating Whitman, uh, translated Whitman uh, because of his interest in the narrative line. And of course, the narrative line goes back to Homer, who wrote in the longer um, uh, line length, which he called the hexameter, to a, a six, six heartbeat, uh, so 12 syllables. This is making sense? Good. And um, so, which is, the, I think, the sort of natural beat of the, of the Caribbean in that um, the, the, the sea is endless. So how do, you, how do you put together a line that communicates something sensible uh, about something that you can't really describe? You need something long, a line that, is, that can be inclusive. So um, that's, that's what I, I've been engaging in. When I, when I was writing um, Far District, there, there were just several poets and I drop a lot of names in there when I, I couldn't uh, build up the courage to, to really steal from them properly. So, and, and you know, that's a long catalog of names. Um, okay, I think we have time for one more. Um, just, well, um, you okay. have a concept of audience when crafting your poem, and, and if so, um, how does that affect Okay, so the question is, do you have a concept of audience and when you're crafting the poem, and how does that affect your language choices? Right, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm repeating because they're, they're using these microphones to tape. Yeah. Um, well, as for me, I don't have any concept of audience when I'm writing because uh, for me, having a concept of audi audience would mean some kind of censoring at once. And, um, so I'm kind of writing into into poetry, into you know the, the nothing that is poetry, um, and then um, and then hope that the poem would find its audience. Uh, yeah, but I, I agree with Valjina. Um, but if I were to say, if I if I had a gun to my head and had to name someone. It, it would have been my grandmother. And I think partly because uh, she couldn't read. So 
it's I'm, I'm, it's really it, the first poem I ever and I, it, one poem that I wrote when I was really young, and I read to her. And it was really terrible, and all she said was that was great, and um, and but you know it's it's it was a big big encouragement, but it's the great love that I sh uh, have for someone who was a real and tremendous um, present. In, in my life, presence in, in, in my life. And I think the things that she surrounded me with um, made, it, made me want to, to write. I didn't have any fear because I know with her I couldn't fail. Um, so, so I, I, if, you know, I, she would be my hypothetical alter ego for an audience. I think Robin. <laughs> Hi, I just have a, um, a comment for Valjina. Um, I work here, and um, I was in the elevator the other day, and I saw a poster, and I was reading it, and it was talking about you guys coming to visit. And I looked at the first name, and I said, I remember this first name. This teacher made sure we knew how to pronounce her first name. And uh, I actually had a class with you three years ago. I remember. And, um, <laughs> I was kind of surprised to be introduced to uh, poetry because it was a creative writing class. And I wanted to um, publicly thank you because I walked out with a favorite poem called Ithaca. It has forever been my favorite poem. And I was so excited to see you, to tell you thank you so much for introducing me. Kavafi? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, that's a. I think that's a very nice note to finish our Q and A session on. And we're going to have now just a few um, more poems. Um, if you're ready, from Aishan and Vagina, and then we'll close. Thanks. Um, well, I'll read two more poems. I was going to read one, and then. Um, Aishan made this very nice move mentioning his grandmother as his ideal audience. Um, so my grandmother, my, my first book is dedicated to my grandmother, and she never said, that's great, when I read her my poems. She always said, that's some kind of an abstraction. <laughs> Everything was an abstraction, and um, it drove me mad, but now I realize she was teaching me clarity, <laughs> how to write clear. <clears throat> My grandmother doesn't know pain. She believes that famine is nutrition, poverty is wealth, thirst is water. Her body, like a grapevine winding around a walking stick. Her hair, bees' wings. She swallows the sun's speckles of pills and calls the internet the telephone to America. Her heart has turned into a rose. The only thing you can do is smell it, pressing yourself to her chest. There's nothing else you can do with it, only a rose. Her arms like stock legs, red sticks. And I'm on my knees, howling like a wolf at the white moon of your skull, grandmother. I'm telling you, it's not pain, but the embrace of a very strong God, one with an unshaven cheek that prickles when he kisses you.
um, and now I'm going to close with a poem, with a sea poem, where the sea is all imaginary. Um, and just very briefly, um, there is a, um, a character, Malvina, that comes in the poem. The poem is called Utopia. And the epigraph is, have you seen a girl with blue hair? Have you seen my Malvina? So Malvina is a character from a Russian translation of an Italian children's book, Pinocchio. In the original Italian fairy tale the story, Malvina is a minor character, but in translation, in rather in Russian adaptation, they made her into a major character. And she was um, the Pinocchio's girlfriend. And she had blue hair, um, which um, was like the the symbol of her beauty and attraction of all the male little characters in this children's book and all of us girls were completely traumatized by this blue hair because nobody could have blue hair it was like you know our soviet version of a barbie doll you know this standard that nobody could live up to so uh, she comes up two times in this poem this malvina after the sunset, our town is deserted like a train station. In its schedule, there's nothing but the sun and the moon. The ocean rushes at seagulls like a dog on a leash, and the tower clock clears its throat every hour, but never dares to speak out. Until the next dawn, lovers fix our bodies. With saliva, they oil our pores. With hands, they repair our faces. That is why we don't look anything like each other. We are handmade. During the day, the waves curl up like the locks of blue-haired Malvina, and we brush them with our soft bodies. We welcome you to the colony of the sun, whose yellow flag, a glass of lemonade, waves over every table. The ocean massages the planet's core, and the night waits through the day in our black hair. In the afternoon, our blood boils and pours out through our nose and mouths onto white ocean stones, turning them into red apples. And we offer those apples to our lovers, and they break their teeth against them. This is why we know neither good nor evil. Sometimes our words can cut meat. When we're betrayed, we go deep into the water and watch how our heartbeats scrambles the ocean into foam and throw high waves on the shore where children drown. And again, the moon hangs like a white cocoon so that at dawn, a red moth will open its wings and come down to the brook. And our men try to subdue it they jump on its back like overripe plums falling from trees to tame the horse of the planet. And then, with their lips dry from thirst, they rush to our mouths. And through them, they pull out our hearts like buckets full of cold water out of wells. And then, they let them fall down with a roar. And this is why our hearts ache. If a heart would be pulled out like a tooth. If memory could be killed, would have been so happy living under the yellow lemonade flag. 
and the new day is at the town gates like a Trojan horse that carries inside the whole army of the sun. Our men take it to the central square, their naked bodies like God's index finger, and our love to them is dangerous and blind like a wasp that swarms around the house. We eat malachite grapes and waffles thin as a spider's web, and the sun marches through the town, wearing a triangle of birds and Napoleon's hat. When it gets dark, we put ocean shells to our ears and listen, holding our breath, to Malvina, her head shaved bald, who weeps while picking up in the dark blue locks of her famous hair. So uh, this poem has um, a phrase in Latin, which is the motto for the university in Jamaica where I went to, Orient's ex occidental lux, um, something like the rising of the Western light. Um, just want to say that, just in case you thought I was just babbling here, um, the poem is called The Babel World. In winter, her visage was my vase when the animals claimed the city from the reptilian water sewer. My head shrunk into a spit blue sea with twisted up pear grove, fishing boats parked like yellow cabs. The sun rotated a rimless tire, black kids jumped through to skid bare-assed into a life of misfortunes. I landed here on cold ground, bewildered by the solstice, hanging a coat on my frame to remember life upon Setebus, the time spent eyeing Miranda from a dim cornea, her face shining with hibiscus sweat, her ankles sandy before the dive, her tongue petaling when she hissed her nostrils flaring into pink holes as I handed her the promise ring. She broke the vine, left me stooged for this sour-mouthed, sore-foot boy, sworn to his bow and my girl. I tied him to a post in an ant nest and chanted, Moon calf, moon calf, you can't walk. The boy changed skin to Ras. Last time I saw him, tall in a suit, she was his bride. So you married? She spat. Yeah, want to that. I made to say fuck off, Mira. But Mooncalf pirated up and took her away, the crippled fuck. I hobbled home to pack my bags. Mona. At orientation, the blind boy of Attica asked, So what country crutches like, man? His name was Psycho. Soft, like ripe Nisberry. 
He laughed. Boy, you a poet for real. No, Cyclops, poets are unreal. He batted off down the hall, DJing something I couldn't hear. I stood grudging whatever light carried him. One night, after the hard wine bacchanal, I woke to piss over the balcony in the garden. I looked down and saw him, walking stick held up in the moonlight, waving and waving. He turned to me, face blank as a paved road. Poet, what you doing? Mind your piss on me. Hands froze on my cock. He said, looking up, in the land of the seeing blind, the real bat is king, and he lives by driving his beast under the sun. For mine, the kingdom, the power, and glory. He moved off into the dark. Don't envy me. The weight of ascended things is heavy. I told him that the effeminate professor unnerves me during Conrad. The dainty hair toss, big soft hands wiping sweat, lips smacking, Mr. Kurtz, he dead. What horror, nailing the neocolonial god across ironboard islands, the shadowy heart like St. Thomas, a thick hummus in my throat. I also, I also ask, What's more elegiac than history? He replied as if I was blind. Love. After class, I walked to the aqueducts, ruined stone arches, the slave water dried into mulching leaves, the orange bricks almost dust. I felt the unrequited flames in their granite hearts disintegrating under my gaze. The sun wanted to set, but the empire wouldn't let it. A bird shot on my arm, its idea of Orion's ex-Occidente looks. My eyes caught it going east to New York. I followed. I also want to say thanks for um, having us tonight and for everybody for coming out. And um, looking forward to the reading series. And I, I was also very much um, taken with the big poster in the window there. Hopefully we could take that home. <laughs> so uh, this is my final poem. Sunday. Sometimes it is one whale that rides the Sunday breeze down into the cold hearts women have blown for the red peas and white rice still soaked in the plastic container. Other times the whole chorus of that hill church carries the broken bray only possible when the hurt can no longer fit into words, when the eyes remain wide open in front of your killer, your mouth opens too. And the sound, when it finally comes, your last stresses taut like the ram's skin on the guinep tree until it snaps back into the tunnel it climbs from. This Pentecostal hovel, half full at the end of the work week, the tambourines drizzling, 
their kettle drums sizzling, their hands clap thunder, their feet stomp the dead, their voices skitter across some dark pass, so dark that you want to check the sky, see if the sun's still there, its rays of peace making Sunday delicate, after the week of sweating in plots that yield little, after braving the road to town, and the many other things before night decides to fall. You are not in this church and won't hear the sermon from the one-tooth pastor who has arrested a well-oiled melody. His age rubbed off the calendar and memory, just that he's alive the way an old mule is alive until one day the field is empty and no one will bother to ask and you won't see the woman falling, frothing on the mud floor. And though she's black as crow, she turns lily at his feet. And when he touches her, amen. And when he barks at her, amen. And when he wheels and turns, amen. And when he reaches the middle of the aisle and spreads his arms, amen. And strikes up the im, amen. And when the congregation stands up, some fast and some slow, because ailments do hold it down like death itself. Amen and amen, going through the zinc roof and down the hill into those well-swept yards, quiet like settled ashes. Thank you. Thank you so very, very much, um, Valjina and Aishan, for your wonderful poems and conversation with us tonight. And thank you all for coming. <laughs>